welcome to this special episode of Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. This week, the annual UN General Assembly's Leaders Week kicks off, held virtually for the first time. Coinciding with the International Day of Peace, the organisation is today commemorating its 75th anniversary through the theme, The Future We Want, The United Nations We Need, reaffirming our collective commitment to multilateralism. To mark this occasion, ASPI has produced this special episode with a number of guests focusing on the role of the UN, the challenges the organisation faces, and opportunities for reform. In this episode, we hear from Dr. Marty Natalagawa, Indonesia's former Minister for Foreign Affairs and Permanent Representative to the UN, and Dr. Courtney Fung, Assistant Professor at the University of Hong Kong and Associate Fellow with the Chatham House Asia-Pacific Program. But first, Lisa Sharland speaks to Australia's Ambassador and Permanent Representative to the United Nations, Mitch Fifield, about what Leaders Week will look like this year and Australia's priorities in the 75th UN General Assembly. The Ambassador also offers some anecdotes from his time in the post so far. Ambassador Fifield, thank you very much for joining us on the Aspie podcast today. Great, great to be with you, Lisa. I thought it'd be really useful for our listeners to get a sense of what's going on in New York at the moment. And as some of them may be aware, this is the week where there tends to be a lot of global attention about what's happening at the UN General Assembly. It's going to be a little bit different this year, of course, uh, because it's taking place largely virtually. So you won't have the uh, leaders across the globe descending on First Avenue, the streets being closed, all those things that people are quite accustomed to in sort of Turtle Bay in New York. But with all of that in mind, I thought it might be useful to, to get a sense from you of what can be expected from the events and statements that going, are going to be delivered next week. Um, and in particular, are there any things that we should be looking out for? Well, Leaders Week uh, will be dominated by COVID uh, from the way that we do business to uh, what leaders talk about. And uh, here's the context. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, the international enclave in Turtle Bay uh, has essentially been closed for six months. Uh, diplomacy has become virtual. Uh, the United Nations New York has become Zoom town. Uh, UNHQ uh, is starting to open up. Uh, we had the 75th uh, uh, session of the GA uh, open uh, earlier in the week uh, in person, which was great. Uh, but Leaders Week will look different. Uh, it's going to feel different. Uh, leaders' statements uh, will be by video. Uh, there'll only be uh, one delegate uh, and masked at that uh, for each nation in the General Assembly. Uh, there'll be six foot distancing. Uh, there'll be no physical side events. There'll be no in-person bilaterals. Uh, there'll be uh, no pull sides. Uh, so uh, the buzz, uh, having pretty much every world leader in the one place at the one time, what could go wrong? Uh, none of that uh, will happen. Uh, in terms of the substance, uh, I think there are probably three things to uh, keep an eye out for. Uh, the first would be uh, a call for a vaccine for COVID to be a public good. Uh, and I think we can probably expect uh, the Secretary-General uh, will renew his call uh, against uh, vaccine nationalism. Uh, and that for Australia's part, uh, we're uh, being a, a good citizen of the world. Uh, we're part of the, the COVAX facility. Uh, I think the second thing to keep an eye out for will be uh, calls to uh, support the recovery, uh, the social and the economic recovery, and to make sure what is done is aligned with the SDGs, uh, 
after all. Uh, this is meant to be the beginning of the decade of action. Uh, and the third thing is uh, probably to keep an eye out for uh, messages of support uh, to end some of the, the long-running conflicts, whether it be Syria, Libya, uh, Yemen. Uh, and uh, I've, I've got to um, congratulate the Secretary-General uh, for uh, his call for a global ceasefire in the wake of COVID, uh, something of the order of 170 nations have, have signed up to that. So uh, it'll look different, it'll feel different, uh, but this will be uh, the COVID Leaders Week. No, I think that's that's fair enough and to be expected. And I guess some people perhaps uh, forget that there's a lot of core business that remains underway at the UN uh, in terms of conflict, in terms of development, uh, that will be up for discussion in, in the weeks ahead. Uh, I guess one of the, the, the perhaps things that might be a, a bit of relief for, for the mission or other diplomatic missions is that you won't be organising extensive visit programs for delegations that are coming through New York on this particular occasion. So I don't, I don't know if that's a blessing or not. No, Lisa, um, more, more, more ministers visiting um, is never enough. <laughs> um, so with that in mind, it's I might... I might move on to the fact that um, given it's virtual, I think one of the, the, the great things is that we are seeing a lot of statements that will be delivered virtually from heads of government and heads of state, as opposed to necessarily um, foreign ministers, although, of course, um, statements from foreign ministers are equally as interesting. And I understand Prime Minister Morrison is, is probably scheduled to deliver his virtual statement towards the end of next week. What are some of the priorities that perhaps we, we might see in the Prime Minister's statement next week? Well, Lisa, obviously it's uh, for the, the Prime Minister to deliver his remarks and to, to choose his uh, his themes and, and his words, but uh, his speech will be made uh, against a backdrop uh, of a, a strategic environment that uh, is amidst a global pandemic, uh, growing great power competition, uh, and in the context, uh, importantly, of uh, the government's timely audit uh, of Australia's multilateral engagement. And... Uh, I guess, you know, to stop and think over the, the last three decades, uh, Australia has found itself operating in a relatively stable and benign international environment. But uh, as you know, uh, our strategic context is now probably best characterised as being one of much greater uh, uncertainty and uh, uh, economic fragility. So you know, that's uh, the backdrop to uh, this, this event. Uh, but it's also worth uh, keeping in mind that um, I think well before COVID, uh, the Prime Minister commissioned an audit of uh, our multilateral engagement uh, and the efficacy of our engagement. Uh, as you know, the, the Foreign Minister in June uh, spoke uh, about the audit uh, at the National Security College at the ANU. And uh, what the audit found, not surprisingly, is uh, that uh, multilateral bodies are under increasing pressure. Uh, the performance of uh, the UN has at times struggled. Um, and the order concluded that uh, it wouldn't be in our interests, our interests wouldn't be served by stepping away uh, from uh, multilateral institutions and leaving others uh, to shape the global order. And uh, the foreign minister affirmed our commitment. Uh, it's important that we uh, work to ensure that global institutions are fit for purpose, that uh, uh, the UN and other institutions are accountable to member states, uh, that they're free from undue influence, uh, and that uh, there's an appropriately strong focus uh, on the Indo-Pacific. So the audit found that uh, we, we want to support uh, in enhancement of transparency, accountability and effectiveness. Uh, so I also think that's uh, an important context um, 
to uh, have in mind uh, when uh, you look to uh, the Prime Minister's remarks. No, I, I think absolutely. And for those of us who work in sort of this multilateral space, I think the Foreign Minister's uh, speech that she gave at ANU earlier this year set out some of the real challenges that we see within international institutions. Of course, this year we've seen the ability of the World Health Assembly, for instance, to um, adopt a resolution um, calling for an investigation into the sort of outbreak of COVID. At the same time, we've sort of seen the intractable discussions that have taken place in the, the Security Council, particularly some of the disagreements between the US and China, which have sort of set that, that framework and, and challenge in terms of the way that the multilateral system is working at the moment. You mentioned that, that one of the findings from the audit was ensuring that the, the UN and international institutions is, is fit for purpose. And with that in mind, are there ways that Australia can be engaging with our partners and, and like-minded countries, I guess, to support those efforts and strengthen the UN, uh, perhaps, that we're, we're not doing at the moment? Well, you're right. Uh, we've got to make sure that uh, the UN is fit for purpose. Uh, that means that uh, you've got to have uh, continual reform, uh, that you've got to keep uh, tending to, uh, to the institutions. Um, and just something I want to highlight from uh, the, the speech that uh, the Foreign Minister gave uh, at the ANU in, in June, um, it culminated in a line that I, I think encapsulates uh, our approach, uh, and that is when she said, nothing just happens. Australia is, uh, is seen as a, a pragmatic nation. Um, in New York, uh, in most multilateral institutions, we're seen as uh, bridge builders, uh, which means that we're, we're well-placed to drive uh, practical change. And we also bring with us a, a regional perspective um, you know, alongside our Pacific Island colleagues. And uh, I think uh, this puts us in a, in a good position to uh, ensure that any UN reform uh, takes into account uh, our region. Uh, and I'll just give you one example. We've been at the forefront of advocacy uh, of uh, a new North Pacific uh, UN multi-country office um, I think when you're looking at uh, UN reform, it's important to, uh, to be practical uh, and to be realistic. As you touched on, uh, you know, another, another good example uh, where we achieved something positive was uh, working uh, with, uh, with other nations uh, to secure uh, the resolution through the World Health Assembly uh, for an independent examination of the COVID response. Uh, that was a, a great example of, of working on a cross-regional basis. But yeah, that's, that's what we're about. Um, that's uh, uh, one of the, the things that the multilateral audit found is that we, we need to work uh, broadly uh, with a wide range of nations uh, to achieve good outcomes. Um, we've, we've done that uh, with the uh, UN North Pacific Office. Uh, we, we did that with the World Health Assembly Resolution. No, I think you've highlighted some particularly interesting work that's underway at the moment. And I certainly reflect on my time having the privilege of working at the mission and Australia's work on the Security Council. And I think some of those same attitudes were, I guess, brought to the engagement that took place there as well. I guess to conclude, you've sort of um, been in your post, I think, close to a year now. I'm not sure if you're counting down to your um, year anniversary in New York at the moment. But are there any things that have surprised you from your time in New York? And I should note that it's probably been a particularly unique time to be in New York at the moment, but are there any observations or surprises that you found since you've taken up the post? Yeah, I think one of the things that surprised me is um, that the UN is like a, a cross between a parliament and the Vatican. Um, might sound odd, but um, you've, got, you've got 103 uh, member states in the general 
General Assembly. Uh, you've got its six committees. Uh, it, it operates with the collegiality and the structure of a parliament with oversight committees. Uh, you need 50% plus one to do things and you need 50% plus one to stop things. Uh, and ambassadors here operate more like senators uh, in a parliamentary chamber where the government of the day doesn't have the numbers uh, rather than uh, as uh, ambassadors in bilateral posts. Uh, so it's all about working together, creating coalitions issue by issue. So it, it feels and operates a, a lot like a parliament. Um, I mentioned also it being a bit of a cross uh, between a parliament and the Vatican. Um, the UN Secretariat um, in the international enclave is not exactly unlike uh, the Vatican city-state. Uh, you've got the Secretary-General uh, cast in the role of a secular pope of sorts, uh, appointed by a, a conclave of ambassadorial cardinals uh, in the Security Council. Uh, and I've got to say, uh, many UN agencies operate a bit like quasi-independent papal states. Uh, with their own mandates uh, and their own governance structures. Uh, yes, it's a labyrinth. Yes, it's complex. It can be frustrating, but uh, it's about advocacy. It's about persuasion. Uh, it's about convincing a majority uh, of a proposition. I guess that's in, in the structural sense. But yeah, it's been a, a very unusual year. No one predicted COVID. No one knew this was, was, was coming. Um, but COVID hasn't just been a global issue. Um, it's deeply affected New York as the host city of the United Nations. Um, I think seldom before uh, have uh, the UN policymakers and ambassadors who were charged with framing a response uh, been as personally affected and in such close proximity to uh, a crisis itself. And this was really brought home uh, by the visuals of uh, Mayor de Blasio receiving a quarter of a million face masks from the UN humanitarian stockpile. So it's affected uh, the people who, who make decisions in this town. It's also been unusual in terms of uh, the working methods of the UN. Uh, so in the General Assembly, uh, you haven't been able to vote on resolutions and that has meant uh, that resolutions are put under what they call silence. Um, and any member state, if they break silence, if they object, then they can kill the resolution. So that's meant every member of the General Assembly has effectively had a veto. But despite that, uh, the, the work uh, has got done. Uh, the new president of the General Assembly is uh, forward-leaning uh, when it comes to face-to-face uh, -face meetings and uh, uh, getting business uh, achieved. Uh, but I guess one of the things that's really brought home for me is that uh, you can never predict uh, what the issues will be that you're going to deal with. Uh, and you can never predict, therefore, what parts of the UN system uh, are going to be important, um, such as the World Health Organization. Uh, and finally, uh, it's really driven home uh, the importance of what diplomats do. Diplomats are posted overseas to do the things that only people can do. And the things that only people can do is to form relationships. Uh, that's much harder when you do it virtually. Uh, so uh, this virtual operating environment has just uh, uh, emphasised all the more uh, the importance of face-to-face -face diplomacy to prosecute our national interest. Thanks very much, Mitch. I think you've made the institution there, which is perhaps a little bit difficult to understand, very relatable to our colleagues in Canberra uh, and also to those who are trying to understand what our diplomatic posts do overseas. So 
Thank you so much for your time today and we wish you all the best as you um, approach sort of the, the Leaders Week taking place next week. Terrific. Great to chat, Lisa. Great. Thank you. Now, Brendan Nicholson speaks to Dr. Marty Natalagawa, formerly Indonesia's Minister for Foreign Affairs and permanent representative to the UN. He's also an author and current member of the UN Secretary-General's Advisory Board on Disarmament. They discuss the importance of the UN as countries increasingly focus inward and how the UN can maintain relevance and better reflect the current global power dynamics. Good morning, Marty. Thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us. Absolutely. You are both Indonesia's foreign minister and its permanent representative to the United Nations. Are you able to talk to us about your experience and impressions at the UN, possibly anecdotes that illustrate life there, its influence, what's good and bad about the organisation? Well, uh, actually, I've been fortunate enough to have had three separate occasions of association uh, within the UN. First, as for, I mean, the latter, the most recent would be as for a minister of Indonesia, but uh, I also serve as a permanent representative of Indonesia to the UN. And also prior to that, as a third secretary, my first posting was also at the United Nations. So, you know, I mean, uh, multilateralism, the United Nations is very much part and parcel of my uh, DNA, so to speak. And I am strongly of the view of uh, the United Nations uh, important contributions to the peace and security, to development issues, to human rights. But day in and day out, when one is uh, working with the United Nations or, or one is reminded of how important essentially diplomacy is uh, in, in, in managing our, uh, issues of our, of our time and the Leaders Week that's now coming up is obviously the most, the clearest uh, manifestation of that. Uh, when leaders from all around the world would have normally uh, congregate in, in New York and to have their formal and informal meetings. And uh, it makes for possibilities, uh, you know, aside from the obvious, namely the, the formal meetings and the statements to be made, but uh, in the corridor uh, and, and, uh, and other opportunities presents uh, itself in for uh, diplomacy to, to, to be given space, essentially. So you'd see it as, a, as still a relevant and important organisation? Well, you know, I mean, we've had this year's uh, theme, the 75th year commemoration of the UN, uh, you know, I mean, obviously brings up all the entire issues about UN's relevance and, and role, etc. Unfortunately, it's not the first time that we've had such a juncture, so to speak. I remember for the 50th anniversary of the UN, there was also similar uh, expectations and hopes expressed for a, more, a, a stronger United Nations, a more effective one. But a lot of these uh, expectations or efforts at reforms, efforts at revitalization have become, have, uh, you know, became like false dawns. And, and uh, I hope uh, this is not the case this time around because there, there are eloquent speeches to be made by leaders and by by, by United Nations itself on where we are uh, as, a, as, a, as a institution, United Nations. But ultimately, I feel that the United Nations, uh, not only the UN itself, but its member states, because the United Nations obviously is not an, a supranational organization. It is ultimately depends on the member states uh, themselves. Uh, I feel that uh, we have to go beyond uh, admiring the problems uh, because at the moment, whenever the UN meets leaders, express their views, they're very eloquent and very 
capable of describing the challenges, the problems that we encounter. But they are leaders. Uh, they are leaders must exercise leadership, shape and mold, and provide actual responses. And I feel ultimately the question must be posed, uh, is it fit for purpose? Is the United Nations essentially a 21st, 20th century response uh, to, then, to, to the problem then? When we are now facing 21st century challenges that are transboundary in, natures, uh, in nature, essentially, and yet uh, the essential mechanism and modalities are uh, as it was then uh, in 1945. Uh, you know, we are now, I believe, in a San Francisco moment uh, where we, we really need to think uh, in a way sometimes uh, outside the box as well. Otherwise, tinkering uh, with uh, reform here and there. Uh, would not, in my view, ultimately be provide the uh, satisfactory solution. Marty, are there particular challenges you have in mind when you say this? Like the world has changed an awful lot since 1945. The world, which when the United Nations was born, the countries who created it were in chaos after an extremely brutal world war and there was massive uncertainty. There was a desire to avoid this sort of thing ever happening again. Are there particular challenges now that you feel the United Nations needs to face? And are there significant ways that the organization should change in particular to tackle those challenges? Well, there is the more conventional answer to your question in the sense that I would say it's along the line of how the United Nations must better reflect the current constellation, uh, current for want of a better term, power dynamics in the world. For instance, the UN Security Council is the most, uh, the clearest indication of how behind times uh, its composition is in terms of uh, permanent member uh, status. In other words, we have to ensure that there is no governance deficit within the United Nations, that the United Nations reflect the, uh, the diversity of, of our world today in terms of uh, countries, in terms of uh, power centers, for want of a better term. But I would now, having now the benefit of further reflecting on the subject matter, uh, I hesitate somewhat to simply say the answer, therefore, is reform in terms of membership, in terms of working methods, uh, so that countries that have, that have been excluded are now given better role. Because I feel that now... Uh, Inclusion, uh, multilateralism, uh, is not simply to do with states. Uh, it's to do with the we, the people spirit, uh, you know, that the charter speaks of uh, at its at, in its preambular. So, how do we ensure that the sense of common participation, sense of common ownership, uh, extends beyond uh, nation states? How can we provide space for other stakeholders uh, to be able to 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 feel that they are part of? They have a investment uh, in the in the efforts and here i think is where uh, the challenge is basically in my view how we can synergize the nexus between domestic and foreign policy uh, you know the traditional distinction between domestic and external uh, allows only for certain possibilities and i think now we have to be a little bit more calibrated a little bit more outside the box at the same time in addressing some of these issues. You know, I mean, like the pandemic is the clearest indication of how security is ultimately human security. It's not just to do with states in the traditional 
billiard ball model, but ultimately the, the individual field can be threatened in their uh, well-being. So you have to have uh, the requisite perspective and paradigm shifts. But uh, it is what it is. I'm not sure whether the current generation of leadership has the uh, wherewithal to usher in such an outlook, because if anything, at the moment, I, I feel that there is more me first in terms of country first outlook uh, prevalent. So I'm not sure whether we want to be tinkering with the UN when the current political dynamic is in this way. We may end up with less uh, multilateralism rather than more. So maybe we should just consolidate first and make sure that at, le- at the very least uh, we don't regress. Do you think that broadly, l- looking back at what you just said, that the UN is still fit for purpose or does it need a major change of attitude to take in things like pandemics, like we have seen pandemics which which affected Asia more than Europe previously. We've now seen a pandemic that's more evenly shared around the world. So the rest of us have got a, a greater appreciation of just how damaging it is to everybody concerned. And we also look at issues like climate change. Now, the United Nations was sort of set up to stop another probably apocalyptic war with nuclear weapons and, and, and whatever. It's, it's played a role in intervening to keep the peace in various kinetic conflicts. Do you think there's time now for it to move on? Well, uh, I think first and foremost, one must uh, always emphasize the invaluable contributions the United Nations has made over the past 75 years. I mean, it has been it has made phenomenal contributions to peace and security, to development, to human rights that must be acknowledged and paid tribute uh, for. Uh, but at the same time, uh, in um, highlighting the need for reform, the need for revitalization, uh, we are not being critical of its, uh, underappreciative of its past achievements, but simply trying to identify what are the new sets of challenges for the future. And you have highlighted some of them, uh, pandemic, the pande- potential for future pandemic, or the, the, the issue of uh, climate change. Uh, is the United Nations uh, equipped uh, for this purpose? And, and this is where I think uh, there is still room for improvement because ultimately, uh, as, I said, as I suggested before, we have to have synergy of outlook between domestic and external. And at the moment, increasingly, in states, member states are becoming more and more inward-looking uh, rather than internationalist and multilateralist in their outlook. And this is where I think uh, the, the issue of concern is uh, how we can, we can make further contribution. But the United Nations' uh, greatest assets are its people, the, the, the people who serve under the UN flag in peacekeeping, in various humanitarian efforts. Uh, those are, they, they are the, one, the people who have made tremendous sacrifices and make huge contributions. Uh, regional organizations pr- probably will need to be better uh, uh, taken at, uh, utilized in terms of cooperation with, so it becomes a truly a local, national, regional, and global common efforts. And I think there is still plenty of room for improvement there. How important is the United Nations to our region? Let's take Indonesia's case, for instance. Uh, if you look at, at the risk of oversimplification, Indonesia's own independence uh, you know, when 1945, we declared our independence and there was a, uh, you know, an attempt to obtain, I mean, a serious attempt to obtain international recognition. And the United Nations played a huge role in that, in that regard uh, between 1945 to 1949. 
subsequent to it, the issue of Papua, uh, the issue in uh, Timor-Leste, East Timor, uh, also re uh, involved United Nations engagement. Uh, and in other words, Indonesia's own uh, national history is a history of constant engagement with the UN, let alone the region, uh, Southeast Asia, Cambodian conflict, uh, uh, among others, and many other situations have involved the United Nations. So uh, it is a fact of life that the uh, Southeast Asia region and the UN uh, must enhance its further uh, collaboration cooperation. And can that be done through ASEAN, just to end off? Uh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, uh, I have been one of the, uh, in the past, one of the, the uh, strongest proponent and supporter of greater ASEAN-UN collaboration. We introduced the so-called ASEAN community in a global uh, community in a global community of nation notion uh, of ASEAN working closer with the UN and and uh, whether it be on peacekeeping, whether it be on development issues, uh, it is a, a very important uh, area for for further development and cooperation. Matty, look, thanks very much, and look after yourself in these dangerous times. Uh, brilliant. Likewise, and uh, uh, you know, I mean, let's let's uh, pay tribute to the United Nations at this uh, important juncture of its uh, history. Finally, Genevieve Feely chats with Dr. Courtney Fung, Assistant Professor at the University of Hong Kong and Associate Fellow with the Chatham House Asia Pacific Program. They discuss the potential challenges of a virtual UN General Assembly, the increased competition for senior positions at the UN, and opportunities for reform. So the UN General Assembly Leaders Week is next week, and it's a really big deal on the UN calendar. We will see the leaders present statements to the world which offer their aspirations and objectives for, but also sometimes their qualms with the organisation and the global community more broadly. Due to COVID-19, this is also getting done virtually for the first time. So maybe to kick off, I know you've spent a lot of time researching and observing the UN. I think it'd be really interesting to reflect ahead of this event. What's gained or lost by this event being held virtually? Do you think it levels the playing field or does it advantage or disadvantage certain countries? So thanks so much, Genevieve. Um, let me answer this question in basically two parts. So I'll first explain what's going on with this sort of virtual setup that they're going into. So it, it's, a, it's an interesting way of dealing with this rather unprecedented challenge of this global pandemic. And it's also going to be unprecedented to have so many heads of state meet virtually. So the way it'll work is that they will have pre-recorded their statements and then their national representative based in New York will be present in the room. So these videos will still have people sitting in the UNGA watching them and introducing their particular head of state, for example, that might be giving the speech. Um, I think it's a good thing in a sense that at least the UNGA Leaders Week can actually go on. And I think it's a very important high salient event that grabs everyone's attention. It always gets to the front covers of every newspaper um, to discuss and revitalize the interest in this UN United Nations system. It's also really important symbolically to show that the UN General Assembly, 190 something states, can still find a way to get together behind that UNGA podium and sort of show again the relevance of the UNGA as an actor at the United Nations that often can get eclipsed by sort of fallout at the UN Security Council. And in some ways, this ability to meet up virtually 
actually does help level the playing field in some ways, in the sense that if you are a smaller state or less resourced state with a smaller footprint um, based at the UN in New York, for example, there is a way now that the team members can participate in even more of these sessions via Zoom. And so they are going to be using the same procedure for the other high-level events going on. So, for example, commemoration of UN 75, the Biodiversity Summit, and again, the meetings to promote the International Day for the Total Elimination of Nuclear Weapons. But that said, I still think there is going to be something lost about not being able to have this type of face-to-face diplomacy. Um, Obviously, there are aspects of face-to-face diplomacy that occur in the minute, in the room, when you have people face-to-face that can spark and engender potential discussions or potential moments of interest. Now we might be left to having to wait for the first person to say, can you hear me now? Am I still muted? So that might be our only moment this year of something sort of going a little bit off kilter. But I think in a more important sense, we do lose out about having all of those side events that cause a lot of stress for New Yorkers. They have to handle even more events than just the Leaders Week. But there are these side events that are going to get passed on now because they've been encouraged to also go online. So for example, New York Climate Week that often does occur in the same time frame for exactly these reasons that they want to sort of multiply the PR and the coverage coming out of Leaders Week, all of the international press is there, that now has to move online too. And so, you know, in that way, the UNGA does help reinvigorate those civil society groups, et cetera, that need to push and get the limelight and get the press coverage that that's going to be more difficult to do now. So especially as we have a UN Secretary General that has the vision for a people's debate, enlarging those that discuss, yes, this virtual platform might permit that, but there are again going to be some types of limitations by having this Zoom-only environment, frankly. I think that's a really good take on it, particularly kind of pulling out how the UNGA is such an important event for demonstrating the importance of the body to the organisation. When you're right, the UNSE does tend to dominate so much of the attention that um, the media does give the organisation. But much of your work has focused on the politics of the UN Security Council and particularly on China's role in the council. Over the past year or so, there's been increasing attention paid to China's push to get more of its nationals into executive positions on the UN in the UN and its various agencies. And this has been received in various ways across um, the press. Do you find this concerning or simply a matter of a major power seizing opportunities where it can, where other major powers have before? Do you think this is an issue which actually could come up or dominate the UNGA Leaders Week? Great. I mean, that's a great set of questions, Genevieve. So if you'll indulge me, maybe I'll just back up and offer a little bit of background. Um, So I think as a China foreign policy scholar, I've been looking at this question for the last year or so. And we can understand that since 2016, um, Xi Jinping has recommended sending more of Chinese talent into the international organizations system. So they're very keen to try and encourage Chinese talent to enter the UN system now. And we know since 2018 that um, Xi Jinping has been very clear that China is meant to be, quote, leading the reform of the global governance system, end quote. So perhaps there's a connection between deploying PRC talent into the system and sort of encouraging the system's reform. And we have seen over the last couple of years in particular that China has been moving forward on securing a number of UN posts. Again, much like any other state that can have the resources to campaign and pitch and have a presence, a large presence at a variety of UN 
working groups and institutions, et cetera, and that these states that are prepared to do so seek to place their nationals as executive leaders of UN agencies and UN specialized agencies. And this is well documented. Um, the Japanese making sure that they retain control of the Asian Development Bank, that we've seen many examples of the US being less than enthusiastic for potential candidates and their ability to bump those candidates lower down on the candidature list. But at this point in time, China now is heading four UN specialized agencies. So the UN Industrial Development Organization, the International Civil Aviation Organization, the Food and Agricultural Organization, and the International Telecommunications Union. And they've also been recognized about since 2008 for sort of retaining control over the UN Department of Economic and Social Affairs. So DESA and DESA. Um, that mainly runs conferences and sort of does research-related projects. So one big set of issues Andessa is working on is obviously questions about biodiversity. Another big set of issues recently um, that they've been also working on is sort of the connections between development and the Belt and Road. And of course, it's no surprise that when you run a campaign to try and be elected or selected as an executive head of one of these agencies, that you have to articulate a platform. And it's, of course, no surprise that these platforms will coincide with how China can explain and articulate its foreign policy interests as they link up to the multilateral interests that the UN agencies are meant to be pursuing. So I think, again, sort of just three caveats I'd just like to point out, that it's not always the case that China is successful. Um, we have documented evidence where the UN Secretary General did not select the Chinese-offered candidate, so they've turned down the Chinese-recommended candidate for the UN Office of Drug and Crime. We also have cases in 2017 where the Chinese candidate was not elected to head UNESCO, and of course, 2020, the well-documented concerns and debates about the Chinese candidate to head WIPO. And of course, that election turned out not in China's favor. Um, so I think that's the first caveat, to not leave anyone with the impression that every time China fields a candidate, it's an automatic success. But I think, again, it's something very important to remember that the three big agencies underneath working within the UN itself, so the Department of Political Affairs, the Department of Peacekeeping Affairs, and the Office of Humanitarian Affairs have traditionally been headed by members of the P3, the permanent Western powers at the UN Security Council, France, the UK, and the United States. So it's not to say that so-called capture of these positions is something unique or criticism to China. And so I think just the last point that I am concerned about, the sort of third caveat, is that there now is this narrative forming that these positions held by China are evidence of China's capture of these institutions. And this China capture frame is being used to try and now disassociate U.S. contributions and U.S. participation in these institutions. And I think that is something worrisome in a way that this frame and this narrative about China capturing these institutions and therefore the U.S. should be mindful and wary of its participation. I think that is something really worrisome. And we really did see that take off during the WIPO debate, um, when China was fielding a candidate to head WIPO, and that debate about whether or not the US would set up a parallel intellectual property structure that really did seem to take hold in that period of time. Yeah, no, I think they're three really important points to kind of keep in mind. And I think you definitely answered all the questions I had there, um, even though I threw many at you. So I think events like this also offer an opportunity to take stock of the organisation more broadly. Turning towards opportunities for reform, what would you highlight as key areas for any organ or body of the UN? 
Sure. So I think on the question of the reform agenda, I think um, the Secretary General has obviously been quite ambitious. He ran on this um, UN reform agenda as part of his platform to get selected as Secretary General. So um, Guterres has continued the momentum. It's a rather unsexy topic that no one really wants to talk about it, but it's something that really does need to be done in order to show that the United Nations is fit for purpose and that it's responsive and nimble and accountable um, in a way for its actions within global governance today. So part of the reform debate is touching upon topics that we all think about in our daily life, for example, the need to have a gender parity strategy, an inclusive workplace, an institutional culture that can accept pushback and new ideas. Um, he's also working on you know, very important initiatives to try and integrate peace and security reform. So how can he integrate the peace and security pillar closer towards human rights and development? and also to prioritize prevention and um, the sustainable development goals as part of this process, right? Um, another thing that's not so headline grabbing, but it's still very fundamental because the UN doesn't work in some ways if member states refuse to pay. And the justification for refusing to pay is that the UN is bloated and squandering its cash. So in this sense, the idea of having management reform of the budgeting and bureaucratic procedures um, is also very important. And the Secretary General has been quite clear that he aspires to make all of these reform gains publicly available. So again, in that sense, trying to hold this reform agenda accountable. And I think, again, you know, to be very clear that the UN sometimes is working hand in hand with member states. Sometimes it's also setting the reform agenda itself. So for example, just one small point on this gender parity strategy, the UN itself recognizes it wants to get to gender parity within the international civil service. At the same time, we have to admit that out of the UNGA um, Leaders Week speaking list, only 11 will actually be women out of 196 speakers. And at this point in time, there is still no woman at all speaking on the first day on 22 September. So again, the UN is leading the way, but it can only go as far as member states are willing to be partners. And to that extent, the UN still reflects all of the hiccups and all of the bumps and all of the issues that we see in global politics, because it itself is a reflection to some degree of its actual member state body. Wow, I didn't know that there were only going to be 11 women speaking next week. I think that's a really Good point to wrap up on, but quite a sad one. So thanks so much for coming onto the podcast today. It's been really great to see how ne next week might play out. Um, please come back anytime. Thanks so much, Genevieve. Thanks for having me. That's all we have time for in this special episode of Policy, Guns and Money. Thanks for listening.